So, as I mentioned, Pastor Casey is the one that does the bulk of the preaching here. That means you may or may not know who the heck I am. My name is Lorenzo. I'm one of the pastors here, in addition to Casey. It's just the two of us, and we are co-pastoring this church together, and we wanted to give Casey a break today, so here I am, and, and I'm going to be covering the pulpit this afternoon. And today is Palm Sunday, as it's been already mentioned, and uh, this is the day when Jesus, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem and, and this has become known as the triumphal entry. And this is where he's entering into Jerusalem. It's before the end of the week where he will ultimately be crucified. And we're going to be looking at the biblical account of that, which is actually recorded in, in a few different places in Scripture. And where we're going to be looking at it is in uh, the book of Matthew. That will be the basis of our study. So if you want to grab your Bibles, turn to, the, to, to Matthew chapter 21. If you borrowed a Bible, you can um, go, turn to page 570. Uh, our, our loaner Bibles are at the back table, right, right at the back of the room right here, if you'd like to borrow one. Also, if you'd like to keep that Bible and take it home with you, you're more than welcome. It's our gift to you. But page 570 in our loaner Bibles, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at this account of your triumphal entry as it's been conveyed over the years, Lord. We recognize that you were on a mission and you had a purpose to enter into Jerusalem, and this was the latter days of your earthly ministry, and your purpose was to die on a cross for us. Lord, I pray that that relationship that you died to give us with the Father is something that we would grow in our understanding of and in our appreciation of this afternoon. And Jesus, I pray that as we look into your word together, that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts to process, to receive all that you have communicated here. I pray, God, that you would be with me and, and anoint my lips to be able to speak your truth with clarity and with accuracy. And Jesus, we just ask that you would do an incredible work tonight and that you would be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. You guys like Burger King? Yeah. Who was that? 
Of course, it was Casey. Funny story about Casey and Burger King, actually. Let me just jump straight into that. Yesterday, I wish I could show you a screenshot. I think I asked him, you know, I almost want to bring it up. I said, what were your honest thoughts? I said, what are your honest thoughts on Burger King? And he said, and it took him about two seconds to answer. And he said, my honest thoughts on Burger King? And this is what he said, it's freaking manna from heaven. <laughs> and then I said, that's what I thought. I didn't know if it was just me. And then he followed up with, love it. Burger King, apparently Casey and I share a love and an affinity for Burger King. Um, I would say of all the mainstream fast food joints, it's probably my favorite. And, uh, and, and that's I was thinking about that, which is why I was texting Casey yesterday. But Burger King, for over 40 years, had a marketing slogan. It recently, they changed it. They actually modified it a little bit. Does anyone, does anyone know what their marketing slogan was? So you guys are all lovers of Burger King as well. <laughs> Lo yes, have it your way. That was, their, that was their slogan. And the idea behind this marketing concept was to differentiate themselves from other fast food joints by allowing customers to modify and customize their orders. And that was the whole deal. Have it your way. And I recently read a story where a guy and some of his buddies took Burger King up on that. And they placed the most ridiculous order. I don't know if anyone's heard this story, but um, they play, placed this ridiculous order. They ordered a Whopper, which is my favorite. Actually, the, the bacon and cheese Whopper is my favorite. But anyway, they ordered a Whopper with, because they wanted to have it their way, 718 pickles. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're a pickle person <laughs> and if you like pickles, but even if you liked pickles, that seems to be a little bit extreme to me. But of course, as it was their policy, Burger King honored the order, they, or, they honored their policy, and of course they, were, they provided these guys with the order that they, they placed, and they charged them uh, $89 for it. And so you might be thinking that this is just a stunt, and of course they didn't even eat it, but you know what they did? I've actually seen the video, you can actually find it on YouTube if you really want. Not now, maybe after the gathering you can, you can search for it on YouTube. They actually ate the whole thing, and there's some pictures of them just like, you know, pickle by pickle, like they're completely over it eating this burger. Um, but what's crazy about this, the, the plot thickens because that was not the only time they put Burger King to the test and this slogan of having it your way. On another occasion, they ordered a Whopper with 100 slices of onion. I hear one person saying, ooh. Yeah, it's one thing if you're into pickles to order, you know, 718 pickles, but it's another thing to chow down on 100 slices of, of onion. But that's, to me, that's kind of gross. But they didn't stop there. On another, these are all different occasions. On another, on another occasion, they ordered a Whopper with 1,000 slices of cheese. Now, I know my kids would have loved that. They're kind of cheese freaks. And then that's not even the end of it, because on another occasion, they ordered a Whopper with 1,050 now, most of you will probably get this, slices of bacon. <laughs> 1,050 slices of bacon. While my kids are into the cheese, my wife is definitely into the bacon. This is something that she would definitely be into. But Burger King said they could have it their way, and so these guys were like, yes, please, I'll take you up on that, no problem. I'd like it like this, and then they ordered it. 
Because it wasn't enough for them just to get a burger. It wasn't enough for them to, to have a Whopper. What they wanted was a, the kind of Whopper that they wanted. They wanted a very specific type of Whopper. They, wanted, they had a very specific thing in mind. Don't just give me a Whopper. Give me the Whopper that I want. And that is just like human nature. We know what we want, and we want it now. And if you, I was just thinking earlier today, most of you are probably four years old, but I remember a song from the mid-90s by Culture Beat, I think it was, that had a song about that called Mr. Vane. I don't know, does anyone know that song? No, see, I'm the oldest guy in the room. Casey's always on my case for being the oldest guy in the room. But anyway, that's what, that's what we want. And so here in our text, we see a similar thing playing out. There's something that they've been wanting. They had a very specific idea of what they were looking for. So let me set the stage for you. For about a thousand years, they had been waiting. For about a thousand years, this little nation called Israel had been waiting. They're waiting to be saved. Because for a thousand years, Israel had been overrun. It started with the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now it was the Roman Empire. And then for a thousand years, there was this one week every year where they would celebrate and remember the time that they were saved from bondage and slavery in Egypt. The Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And he needed a little bit of motiva motivation, so, so God messed Egypt up with plagues, and it was the last plague that was the tipping point. It was the last plague that finally got Pharaoh's attention. It was the plague of death. Moses, who was God's representative to the Israelites at that time, had the people kill lambs and place the blood of the lambs on the doorposts so that when the angel of the Lord came and saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over. And as the angel of the Lord went throughout the land, in the homes that did not have blood, the blood of the lambs on the doorposts, the firstborn in that house would die. And that was the last straw for Pharaoh. Pharaoh had enough. And he tells him to get out. Get lost. I'm over it. And so, and that was what precipitated them ultimately getting, being set free from Egypt. And so for a thousand years, every year around this time, the Passover was celebrated and they were reminded of the great deliverance of God. And it's on this week of Passover that the triumphal entry takes place. It's on this week of Passover that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Now, it's been three years since Jesus' public ministry began. Three years of stories spreading about him, stories of the most ridiculous things going on, stuff like he walks on water, he heals the sick, he calms storms, he raises the dead, performs other miracles like taking a kid's small lunch and feeding 5,000 people with it. This Jesus had a relatively small number of devoted followers. But there were other people that, whose curiosity had been stirred up, and they would tend to follow him, around in, uh, follow him around, and not as a devoted follower, but literally just a follower trying to figure what this guy was all about as their curiosity is stirred up. 
And as his popularity is growing, it's starting to mess with the agenda of the religious leaders because they saw him as a threat. In John, the other account of this whole passage, the triumphal entry, John records the perspective of the religious leaders. And he records them complaining and saying, the world has gone after him. They were paranoid. They were completely freaked out. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power, to their religious control. And so here at Passover, crowds of Jewish pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem. Every year as Passover is celebrated, people are on this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. They would travel to the holy city to celebrate and remember the day that God had saved them from captivity in Egypt. The city would, of course, experience an explosion in, their, in the number of people that were there, in their population. And, you know, as I was doing my research, I, I came across numbers that were anywhere from several hundred thousand. And I even came across uh, what, what Josephus said. Josephus was a, a Jewish scholar and historian, and he, and he records that at the time of Passover in the first century, not necessarily this particular weekend as Jesus is coming into town, but uh, it would be typical in that first century um, at Passover in, Jer- in, the, in the area of Jerusalem that there would be three million people in the area. And so this is what is happening as Jesus is coming in. He's in the midst of this pilgrimage into the city. Religious fervor and zeal is completely off the charts. And this is what's going on as he comes into the city. It's an incredible scene. As we saw in our text, people are laying down their cloaks on the ground in front of him. In a sense, they're sort of rolling out the red carpet. And then our text describes, and other passages in Scripture describes, they they cut down branches from trees. I believe it's John that records those tree branches and, and identifies those branches as being palm fronds. That's where we get the term Palm Sunday. And they're waving those, and they're laying those on the road in front of him as well. They're laying out the red carpet for him. The crowd is ecstatic because the Messiah had come, and they were giving him the royal escort. And the crowd is surrounding him. The crowd is going before him, escorting him into the city. The crowd is following up from behind as well. They're surrounding him, and they're ushering him into the city. And at some point, somebody shouts out, Hosanna to the son of David. Maybe a little sheepishly at first so as to not alarm the, the Roman guards and the Roman soldiers. But then it's heard again and again. And slowly this shout catches on and the entire crowd begins to chant together in unison. They're calling out Hosanna, which means save now or save please. The word has evolved over the years. Um, it's been translated from Hebrew into Greek and, then in, and, and all of that. It's complicated, but basically it means save now, save please, or it's a, it's a plea for salvation. And they're looking to him to be their savior. They're looking to him and they're calling out to him to save them. And they use this phrase, the son of David. It's a reference to King David. He was the, the greatest king in Israel's history, a great military leader. And now their hope is that this Jesus will reestablish the throne of David and restore their nation. Son of David is also a messianic title. And so they recognize that he is the Messiah, which means he's the anointed one, or he's, he's the chosen one, their deliverer. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see that in verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
To come in someone's name is to represent them. So they are saying, save us as a, as a representative of and with the power of God. And this Jewish crowd here in saying this, they're actually quoting from Psalm 118. And, they're, and, they're, and this is the psalm that they're quoting is a messianic psalm. So cer certainly there's this connection that they're making from Jesus to the Messiah. They're seeing this as a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus himself has been prophesied that he would enter in this way and he would come to them and be their savior, to be their Messiah. In Luke's account, um, we see that this is troubling, once again, the religious leaders. And they begin to rebuke Jesus. And they say, basically, tell them to shut up. And Jesus sees no reason to do that. And then he says the most amazing thing. He says, and we see this in Luke chapter 19, that if they were to be silent, the very stones would cry out. And we see in Luke that what they have been saying were not just shouts, but Luke describes it as rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. So as worship is rising, the religious leaders say, no, no, no. And Jesus is like, it's got to happen. Or the stones will cry out. Crazy thought. Talk about a rock band. <laughs> so the people are going off. This is really happening. No doubt they're elbowing one another. They're giving high fives. No doubt they're thinking in their minds as they're putting this all together and they're making assumptions about what is about to unfold. I don't know if you ever like that, you know, if you're a sports fan or whatever, or maybe it's when you're watching a movie, but you sort of start to anticipate how something's going to play out, whether it's a game you're at or a movie that you're watching. And no doubt they're starting to formulate in their own minds, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah. And he's come to save us. And they're walking by, on their way into the city, they're walking by Roman soldiers and they're just winking at them thinking, you're done. And they had all these expectations of what Jesus would do and how he would deliver them and how this would all go down. They were completely over this Roman occupation, completely over it and all the years that throughout their history that they had been under the rule of other nations. All the pent-up frustration, all the waiting, the anticipation, the expectation comes to a climax in this moment and in this cry of Hosanna to be saved once again as their Messiah, their deliverer comes riding into town on a donkey. Now a little side note. That should have been the first clue that though he was the Messiah and he was prophesied that he would come in riding on a donkey, as we saw lowly, he's not riding in as a conquering king on a horse, a war horse, but he's riding in on a beast of burden, this beast of peace. But as he comes into the city, our text tells us that, that the news reverberated throughout the whole city of Jerusalem and describes the city as being stirred up there in verse 10. And this word stirred up um, in, in, in Greek means to quake, to shake, to tremble, to throw into a tremor. And then just a couple chapters later, I believe it's in Matthew 27, where Matthew is giving the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, which in just a few, a few days time, that's going to take place. Matthew describes as Jesus dies at the death of Jesus, there was this earthquake, and he uses the same word here that is used here, describing how the city was stirred up. 
Now that does not mean that there was little earthquake as Jesus entered the city, but you get, it's this figurative expression communicating this idea of how this news was reverberating throughout the city and the effect that it had. And the people, as they enter into the city, and there was this weird relationship that Jesus had with the city of Jerusalem. So much of his ministry was outside of Jerusalem. And the people of the city, though, as this news is coming in, like, who is this? And that's the question. That's the big question, and one that we must all ask at some point. And then as Jesus comes into the city, I love what we see happening next. And we see that in in Mark chapter 11. This is, what, this is what Mark describes. And Mark is known in his accounts as being very chronological. And he says, and he entered, the city, he entered Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What a giant letdown. All the hoopla, all the excitement, all this craziness, the buzz and then nothing. It was kind of anticlimactic. It all comes to a screeching halt. What was going on? What a disappointment this must have been for the crowds that have been crying out, Hosanna, save us, save now. What a disappointment this must have been for those that had hailed him and celebrated his entry into this city. What kind of deliverer was this after all? Jesus, you forgot something. Remember how you're going to overthrow the Roman government, the Roman occupation? You're going to deliver us from this occupation? The whole overthrowing the Romans thing? What, when, what's, what's, what's going on? You can't just be done. And it was true that he was the Messiah. And it is true that he would bring salvation. But it just wasn't going to go down the way they imagined. He would not set up his kingdom the way that they expected. They were looking for a king that would save them politically. The people were looking for, for that. Someone that would save them nationally, someone that would save them uh, culturally. But Jesus came to save them spiritually because his kingdom was not an earthly political kingdom but the rule and reign of God established in the hearts of people. Because man's greatest need is spiritual. It's not political. It's not national. It's not cultural. It's spiritual. And we see shortly after this time, the religious leaders, as he's now entered into the city, begin to plot to kill him. And as their plot gets going, we see that, we, or we will see by the end of the week, by the weekend, enough of the crowds had become disenchanted with Jesus that the religious leaders were able to turn them against him. The crowds were fickle. They received him, and then they rejected him. They ended up hating him as much as they had loved him. The same people that had cried, Hosanna, would in just a few days' time scream, crucify him. And then to the cross he would go according to God's sovereign plan. To say the least, they had unmet expectations. Jesus did not present himself 
the way that they thought, the way that they had hoped. He did not present himself like David, their King David, their famed King David, a great military leader to deliver them from Roman rule and, and establish God's kingdom by force and reestablish their lost nationality. And then because he failed to deliver on what they wanted, they were done with him. Their requests for being saved, their call to him to save them, came with strings attached. They, and here's the interesting thing. It was appropriate for them to, to call him in that way and request that of him. But that request of him had these strings attached and they imposed the how on him. Save us and I need you to do it this way. They weren't just asking for an outcome. They were prescribing a methodology. Same logic as the Burger King guys. It wasn't enough to get a savior. They needed him to save them in a certain way. They had welcomed him as the Messiah King, but they had missed the point. They saw him, but they did not recognize him. They acknowledged him, but did not know him. They received him because they had plans for him, and they celebrated him as long as he was useful to them. They, ro they rolled out the, the welcome mat. Come on in. We're happy to see you. We've been waiting for you. We have plans for you. Jesus, to them, was just a means to an end. And it's easy to look at an account like this and think, fools. But you know what? We are no different. We are no different. There are times when we call out to God, and when we do, we formulate the answers to our own prayers. We, we reach out to God, something's going on in our lives, and we say, Lord, I really need you to work in this situation. And we're saying, and you need to do it like this. Sometimes we do it on purpose. Sometimes we do it with knowledge. Other times we're less aware that we are doing that. But we're just like this crowd where we are calling him to save, calling him to deliver, calling him to do something, and we prescribe the methodology, and we have these expectations of him. And the way it comes across is, I need you to come through for me, and I need you to do it this way. And I would go as far as to say that we create a version of God, we create a version of God that almost becomes a form of idolatry. Because we create this concept of God that will do whatever we want. We make him out to be sort of a caricature. And it's really just a distortion of who he really is. In the end, it's not God who lets us down. It's the caricature that we created. It reminds me of what it says in Psalm 115 about actual physical idols. It says, they have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
Because in this whole process, what's happening is we are setting ourselves up as God. And when he doesn't do what we want, we're over it. We're done. We get mad at God. We get frustrated with God. Or worse, we even go as far as to reject him. Rejecting him, in some cases, entirely. Now, just imagine if Jesus had actually set himself up as king in the way that they wanted. What would that have looked like? And if he had set himself up as king in the way that they wanted, his purposes would not have been accomplished. God, here's the thing, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and we don't always see it. If he had come in the way that they wanted, what he actually came to do would have not happened. But Jesus has it all planned out. He has it all mapped out. He knows exactly what's going on. He's riding into the city on a donkey and he's looking at these crowds that are calling out his name and they're calling him the son of David and they recognize and they get that he's the Messiah, that he's a descendant of their famed King David, that he will ultimately restore the throne. But he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they want. And I just wonder about how his heart was breaking in that moment knowing that they did not understand what was really going on because they didn't see it. Because here's the question. What kind of God would he be if he required our approval for what he does? What kind of God would he be if he required our approval for what he does? What kind of God do we think that we are serving when we demand to approve of what he does. We sort of, again, make him out to, the, to be this caricature, or we make him out to be this puppet that we want to control. Even one of his disciples we see recorded earlier tried to interfere and intervene with God's ultimate plan. And here's the thing. It wasn't like he was like this horrible person he meant well, and he loved Jesus dearly, but nevertheless, he tried to interfere with his plan. Jesus had been just telling his disciples about um, the day was coming that he would suffer and he would die. And we see in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 22, Peter pulls him aside. And so, so I'm like, come here, like we should talk about this. He pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him he begins to rebuke Jesus. And he says to him, far be it from you, Lord. In other words, you're not going to suffer and die. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a response. I wonder how Peter felt in that moment. I mean, that's one of those gulp moments, I guess, if there ever was one. But he meant well, but his plans, Peter's plans, were in the way of Christ's purpose. He was, Jesus was coming to save all of mankind, to perform for them and achieve for them 
the greatest deliverance that could ever be known. And even though we ask God to work in our lives, and it's right that we do that, we must be careful to not make this mistake, to not impose our ways upon him because our plans don't always jive with his purposes. And when it's often when we find ourselves in that situation where we're crying out and we're calling out to God, our perspective is everything's wrong and everything needs to be fixed and God, I need you to come through. You know what's also kind of funny with that? And I'll just confess, I've seen this in my life. When was the last time I really called out to God like that? In the crisis, we always do that. In the crisis, we always do that. And we're sort of saying, this is what I need you to do. But it's important for us to realize if we have a godly perspective of the difficult things that we go through, it's important for us to understand that even in those things, God has a purpose. He's doing something. As Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, and it was basically scripted, it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to die. And the crowds were praising him and rejoicing and shouting and worshiping him. They were about to turn within a week's time and cry, crucify him. Were things getting out of control? Nope. All happening according to plan. He came rolling into town for that purpose, to die for them. And it's important for us to recognize that even in these moments, that God has a purpose. And we have to be careful that we don't prescribe for God how he's got to deal with the situation that we find ourselves in. I think it's important for us to recognize the situation that we're in, understand that he's still in control, he has a purpose even for, for those things that we're experiencing and those things that we're going through, and we need to pray to him in accordance with that knowledge and that understanding. And there's times where we don't fully get it, but we need to be on this side of imposing upon him about how he needs to rectify the situation according to, to uh, what we want. Because sometimes... We, we just get caught up in that. But we have to remember that his purposes trump our plans. Can you say that name in church? I hope, I hope you can say that name in church. But God desires to work in ways we can't even imagine. And it's not always until we're on the other side of that thing that we can look back and go, oh, I see what you did there. We don't always realize that, but we, can, we often, with 2020 hindsight, can look back at that and realize what he was doing. God desires to do a work in ways that we can't imagine. On Wednesday at 7 p.m., we're going to be gathering here, and we're going to be praying together as a church. We're going to be gathering here to pray as a church, and as we do, we're going to abandon our plans and we're going to ask God about what purposes he has for us. We're going to ask God about what he purposes to do in our church community in this next season. I remember it was actually at a prayer meeting like this, probably over a year ago, at one of our church prayer gatherings, and Pastor Casey was sharing, and, and he he. He said this line that I had never heard before, and if some of you were there, maybe you remember it. I don't know, but I've never forgot it, and I hope I never do forget it. 
but he was describing the prayers that we should be praying, and he described them this way, requests on our lips with submission in our hearts. It's okay to ask God for stuff, but there's got to be that level of submission at the heart level. The Bible says you have not because you ask not, so we should ask, but it's not where the things that we're asking, we're just rigid on those things. And we're like, okay, this, I need you to do this, and so I'm going to ask for this, and I need you to do it. I needed this to play out this way. It's okay, and it's good. God calls us to present our requests to him, but there needs to be a level of submission in our hearts. It all goes back, I think, to the question that we saw in verse 10. Who is this? This is the question that people in the city asked. He is who he says he is, and who he says he is matters more than the lesser God we sometimes make him out to be when we make him subject to us. When we pray to God and we call out to God and we find ourselves in a situation in the way that we relate to God, we need to be mindful of who he is. And he's not the lesser God we sometimes make him out to be. What we think and what we feel does not change who he is. Regardless of what you're thinking, regardless of what you're feeling, it does not change the reality of who he is. And we can just start with the obvious. I mean, we don't have time to get into all of his character and nature tonight, but we can start with the obvious. Let's start with the fact that he is good. Scripture establishes this throughout. This truth is established. He's good. He's also, also we know that he loves us. And this whole story of coming into the city and, and within a matter of days dying on the cross for us by dying on the cross, he demonstrates not only his goodness, but also his love for us, and that he absolutely is not in any way, shape, or form holding out on us. But we trip out when we go through some things, and we shake our angry fist at God because he's not blessing us in a particular way, or we want him to do something different than what he's doing, and we feel like somehow he's mistreating us. But all we have to do is be reminded of who he is and how he's already demonstrated his love. And if we can cling to the character and nature of God, if we can cling to the reality of who Jesus is, we already know what we're dealing with. And we're not dealing with someone who abandons us. We're not dealing with someone who doesn't love us. We're not dealing with someone who isn't good. We're dealing with someone and we ultimately serve, if we've put our, place, or put our faith in Jesus, we ultimately serve Jesus Christ who submitted himself to death to take our sins upon himself. He died in our place, giving us the greatest gift we could ever be given so that we could have a relationship with God. So when we start to find ourselves sort of rewriting the script and building this idol, this caricature of God, that we worship and we serve, it's not Jesus. It's not God as he has revealed himself. How we feel can completely throw us for a loop. 
we can, here's the thing, we can be honest about our feelings. When we're going through difficult times, we should be honest with our feelings. But we should be honest with our feelings to the point that we recognize that they're just feelings. And they're feelings that we really are experiencing, but they are not truth. They do not determine truth. So if we do not cling in these moments to the character and nature of God as he reveals himself in the scriptures, we spare, well, if we do cling to the character and nature of God, we spare ourselves disappointment. We spare ourselves disillusionment. We spare ourselves a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and a lot of drama. Knowing God changes everything about how we view our circumstances. When we go through difficult times, he is not any less our savior. He is not any less our deliverer. But even when we mess up, even when we've imposed these expectations of, on God, even when we realize that we've sort of treated him like this puppet that we're seeking to control, even when we realize that we've, we've created this caricature of him that is just a distortion of him, that is just a counterfeit of him, there's still good news when we get it wrong. There's still good news when we get it wrong. Jesus, he doesn't have this attitude. It's like, oh, I'm done with you. He doesn't do that. How do I know that? His character and his nature. That's the truth. He's not done with us in those moments. If he had been, and think about him in the crowd, right? They had just cried out and worshiped him. Within a matter of days, the same crowd as he looks out, they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him. If Jesus was done with the crowd, he wouldn't have died for them. He died for the crowd. And as they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him, he's like, yeah, you're you're kind of making my point. (laughs) I'm going to die for you. Jesus wasn't done with Peter. When Peter got in the way and said, no, far be it from me, God. You will not suffer and you will not die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus wasn't done with Peter. Peter becomes this amazing leader in the first century church, in the early church. It's just 40 days or so after around this time that God powerfully uses him to preach a message where 3,000 people get saved. He wasn't done with Peter. Because here's the good news. The good news is that God loves us. And he forgives us. And he looks past our faults. He looks past our failings and our sins because Jesus died for us. It's because of Jesus dying on the cross that God is able to still extend his love, his grace, and his mercy to us because of Jesus. Jesus took our sins upon himself so that our sins would no longer separate us from God. He came to earth on a rescue mission to rescue us. The crowds that, de- that, that killed Jesus demonstrated their need. When we make mistakes and we sin and we fall short and when we, when we wrong other people and we deal offensively with God or whatever it might be, The good news is that we can be forgiven of those things. God still has a plan. His mercy and his grace is extended to those things. 
And here's the reality. There is only one way to be saved. The way that Jesus accomplished it for us. The only way to be saved is the way that Jesus made. Here we have the crowds receiving him and then the crowds rejecting him, but that was going to be ultimately their saving. Not in the way that they thought, but in the way that they ultimately needed. The same is true for us. We don't always get it right in our relationship with God. God's bigger than that, though. That doesn't mean it's okay, but he's bigger than that. And he's like, yeah, every time we fall short, he's like, yeah, yeah, I died for you. Like, that's the point. So we can just, we can continue to move on because God redeemed us from the undesirable condition that we were in bondage in, just the way God redeemed Israel from the bondage that they were in with Egypt. And just as the Israelites here were seeking to be redeemed from this Roman oppression, and God's like, that's not your problem. This is your problem. And the son of David is coming to redeem you. So it's upon us to look to Jesus, to pay attention to who he really is as he's been revealed in scripture for us to cling to the character and nature of God so that we can learn how we can relate to him in ways that we can't, when we can't understand our circumstances, when we can't make sense of anything else, we have that sort of foundation or that plumb line that we can cling to, that sure foundation that our relationship with God is rock solid. Our salvation is secure. And when everything else is falling apart, he is the one that holds us in the palms of his hands. And when we don't know what the future holds, he's the one that holds the future. And he's the one we put our hope in. He's the one that we put our trust in. And what he's going to orchestrate, we don't always know, but it's important for us to sort of take a step back and allow him to be God and do as he pleases in our lives for his glory. Let's pray.